<laughs> hey! <Yeah>. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. That's good. Thank you. So, I haven't talked to you in almost, well, it's about three and a half years, I think, that we've spoken uh, in person. I, If I recall correctly, we met on a flight to Tokyo in 2018. Is that correct? Yep. yep. In September. September 2018. And we were on two very different paths even at that time. And... I still remember it very fondly when, in fact, when you reached out for this podcast, I was just kind of like, I was just wondering how he was doing. <laughs> so it was perfect because at the time I was flying back to Japan for uh, a memorial of my late mother and you were on a trip to Japan for recreation. You were in a very... Uh, I would have described it in the, at the time as like uh, an adventurous time of your life. <laughs> and yeah, you were looking to travel and you were like excited and you wanted to know things. And I think we talked a, a, about six hours out of that flight. <laughs> and those, I think the flights are about 12, if I remember. Um, I, I think yeah. I passed out eventually. Did I sleep? You did. You did. Uh, that's so yeah, rare for me I, I, on a plane, but when they're that long of a flight, it's kind of like if you can get yourself to sleep, take it because <laughs> like only under certain circumstances, depending on which way you're going. I've done that flight so many times in my life that like if you can sleep on the way back to the States, uh, the better. But if you're going to Japan, it's harder to like get over jet lag right away unless you stay up really, really late or, or it's somehow the other way around. I just remember having a harder time with one direction versus the other because the I, amount of hours that you lose in time zones. I remember getting there and any sort of jet lag or tired that I would have had was, was gone. Cause it was like, Holy, Holy shit. Like I, where am I? I was mm -hmm. so you helped me through the airport and you helped me mm -hmm. pick up my my Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. which I had to pick up from the post office in the airport, Correct. which you got me right there in about five minutes. And mm -hmm. you pointed me on the bus to get onto. And had you not been there, <laughs> I know from what happened after. I left you. That would have been that would have taken me three hours to figure oh, out God. what I was doing. <laughs> That's what I was worried about. Cause like you're just this like you were this bright eyed guy who was just like so eager to be like, oh, I'm gonna go to Japan and I'm just gonna have such a great time and I can't wait to try all these things. And I'm like, first of all, your first challenge is to get out of the airport. <laughs> but <laughs> but because I've been to that airport easily dozens of times throughout my life i know it pretty well even the old one the new one because there's the old terminal the new terminal and i remember having to go to that post office a couple of times over the last like five to ten years being like oh i know where that is it would be a shame for me to not show you at least where it is and i wasn't in any sort of hurry 
because my dad was going to be picking me up. Of which, here's the fun part, because you remember that film crew that were there? Yes. Yes. And how they were, like, looking for foreigners who were, it's like, why are you coming to Japan? And why do you come here? And then it was really funny because I was like, oh, yeah, well, Sean here is really, he's coming for his first time. He's really excited. And then they turned to me. It's like, well, why are you here? I was like, oh, my family lives here. And (laughs) just like, well, you seem really interesting. I was like, well, I'm not that interesting. I'm here for something sad. So don't worry about me. The way way that I remember that was Sean's here to visit and sightsee. And Mm -hmm. they didn't really care. They probably heard that millions of times because I I came to find out later that that film crew was a common thing where they're Mm -hmm. there often just just talking to people. You responded to them in Japanese and partial partial Japanese. They didn't look at me again. They were like, oh, (laughs) this is much easier to communicate in Japanese. And you could tell as you got deeper into the story about your mom, mm-hmm. I just felt like I was, you know, I was just fading into the background. <laughs> like, yeah. like, oh, we don't care about this guy. Here's here's the interesting story. I still hold this true in like all my interactions. I think everyone has an interesting story. So it's a shame on them for not digging deeper. But I understand from a TV's perspective how a, a, a white kid growing up in Japan and has parents who still live there. And has like a long history there, which is why shortly after you left, my dad came to visit and the film crew was nearby. In fact, I was just like, hey, dad, this film crew is like interviewing people about like why foreigners live in come to Japan. And they were curious about you. And he stopped and chatted with them for a little bit, too, actually. That's cool. That's cool. And he spoke in more fluent Japanese than I did, but... I never even saw the TV segment. I don't think I ever would, but it's nice to know that like someone like my dad is kind enough and patient enough to be like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do like a 10, like a five minute TV spot. Sure. <laughs> cause he was just there. And I still remember something he said to me was cause I had told him what I had done for you. And he's just like, that is very much in your personality to be helpful and to take care of people as best you can. And well, you, I'm, pr- you were, I'm proud of you. <laughs> Go ahead. You were teaching me hiragana on the flight. <laughs> you were, you were writing do, them out. And I do remember some of that, yeah. Would you, would you, are you being modest? Or would you say that your Japanese was, is not fluent? Is it, is it poor? Or are you just being nice about it? I am probably a little bit of both. So what I would describe my Japanese level as would be preschool to first to second grade. Okay. So the the thing about growing up in Japan is that when you're a little white kid and you go to Japanese preschool, you learn the hiragana, you learn katakana, and you learn the basic Japanese levels. But then unless you continue in like a Japanese education, you'll find yourself like going somewhere else. So like I was brought immediately to a private Christian school short, like right after preschool. 
So I had a couple foreigner friends who were in the preschool with me. And then we transitioned over to a more American style, English speaking teaching environment where I spent 13 years from kindergarten through 12th grade. So dominant language was English, but amongst my friends, there was a mixture of Japanese and English. And primarily we spoke English, but we would use common slang words a lot more time, more than anything else. So what I've learned and gathered over the years of like how much my Japanese actually is, is that I know how to have basic informative conversations, but I don't have a way to express myself in nuance. Mm. And that's one of the things that I found to be the most challenging about Japanese is because of the way that it's structured, my brain doesn't necessarily have a good command of it. I can tell people where I'm from. I could tell people what I want. I can tell people uh, where I need to go and I can tell, I can order food and I can travel pretty conveniently, but I don't think I would consider myself on a personal level to be fluent to a native speaker. Okay. You couldn't be doing this podcast in Japanese. No, not at all. Okay. Okay. To me in the moment, it was like, my mind was blown. Like here you are <laughs> just having, cause I don't know if you're speaking at a preschool level to them or if you're no, speaking at a collegiate level, it was just like, wow. Like how, how wild is this? And they loved it too. So. I, I did notice that they really enjoyed it. And I enjoy it too, because when I get a chance to use my Japanese, the little that I know, it's nostalgic for me. Or it's also like comforting to me. Because when I was little, I still have a lot of like little things that I know and that are still ingrained in me. Like l things that a young Japanese kid would have when they were little. And then I had the same things. Like I have some of the same TV shows that kids in the 90s grew up with in Japan and kids in the States have no clue what they are. <laughs> so, so I have a, a weird mixed culture. You're in the Northwest right now. You're in Portland or Seattle or Washington or I am in currently in Washington. I, <laughs> okay. I'm in Spokane actually. Okay. Okay. And I was living all over the Northwest primarily you were in Montana um, for a while? I was for about seven years, yeah. Okay. That was a drastic change compared to the, the metropolis of Tokyo. <laughs> so. Let's. Uh, but there was a. Yeah, go ahead. I kind of know this because I kind of remember it, but anybody listening is like, what's going on? Like, where was she? Where did she grow up? I I'll, was. I'll put out what I remember and then you sure, go ahead. test myself. Cause I have a horrible go for memory. It. No, I want, I want to hear what your perspective is. Go ahead. I don't remember where you were born. Okay. What's what's country or city were you born in? I was born in the USA in okay. Michigan of all places, but not for too long. We lived there for less than a year and a half. Okay. And then we moved to Tokyo. And that was based on a Christian missionary type. Yeah. To make a long story short. Yeah. My, my parents are missionary kids themselves. 
so my grandparents on both sides were missionaries to uh, Japan back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then they decided to take up the mantle on both ends. Uh, parents got married in 80, 1980, and then had a couple kids. And then after their third kid, they had decided to go back to Japan and begin raising their family over there. And so you said up through, how old were you then when you left Japan back to America for the, for the first time for an extended stay, not a visit? 2008. Oh shit. So, so a long time, your entire high school life. Oh yeah. Okay. Was in Japan. I spent K through 12 at Christian Academy in Japan, which is the school that I went to. Which is a great school, by the way. If you're Christian and you want to do something different and try something a little bit more exotic as far as where to go, try it. It's great. How many um, How many kids were there with you? Like uh, just ballpark through the, through the whole school. Sure. Between sure. K through twelve, it's usually between four fifty five hundred. That's all. That's way. I thought you were gonna say fifty to a hundred. That's a significant um, amount of people. Most classes never exceed, like per grade, no, most don't exceed 50. Um, Some are as small as like 20. And these are all Christian missionaries or no? Uh, Not anymore. I would describe the early days between the 50s and 60s and 70s. That was primarily white Christian missionaries. But over the decades, there was a lot more integration, and I would describe now it to be a very diverse student body. Are there native Japanese kids going to this school? That's right, there okay. are. Okay, so, so from my perspective, knowing that Japan is at the most, right, 2% Christian? That's pretty generous, but sure. That's generous. Okay, so... How are how are the kids coming to find the school? Is so it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly because I think it depends on the people themselves. But I do know that this school has a pretty high academic standard, enough mm. that if I recall correctly, when I was graduating in two thousand and eight, that they had for a good five to ten years. I think about a good five years, they had a 99% college acceptance rate. So, it, oh, I, I blanked on the word. There's a, there's a prestige involved. Yes. Sending your Japanese child to a... An international primarily, school. That's, primarily that's, English speaking, right? Correct. And they also teach other languages, including French, Spanish, and uh, they even have Japanese classes, of which I took a few. I probably should have taken more. But... It was, it's definitely a a well-respected school, even amongst non-Christian people. How does the private school thing work over there? Is it, are the children, are the parents paying an admission? Yeah. Yes. And it's fairly expensive. Okay. So it's a private school similar to what we would think about in America. Exactly. So I don't know a lot about the private schools here in the U.S. because I've never really been to one. But from what I've been told from people who have gone to them is that generally they have like pretty strict dress codes. They have 
rules to follow and it's very expensive and only typically richer parents can get in there. The only reason why I was able to uh, go and be there for K through 12 was because my parents actually worked there. That was part of their missionary calling was that they were to be staff members for the school. And if you have kids and you're a staff member, those kids get to go for free. Is the curriculum faith-based? Are they teaching these kids? Is there Bible class or Bible study? There is, actually. Okay. But let's say that the Japanese parents mm-hmm. that want to send their kid there mm-hmm. for the head start or for mm-hmm. the status. Sure. They would send their non-Christian, non-believing Japanese kid to the school Correct. just because of what it could do for their child. Not because of Jesus. I imagine that does occur. However, I do understand that there is a growing understanding about Christianity and how it's hard for me to speak for for a Japanese person or a Japanese family and how they would motivate that. But I do know a few friends and families who have Japanese parents or who have Japanese family members. And from what I understand, it's about adding to your resume in the sense of like the things that you're capable of and having enough cultural like Venn diagrams connecting so that you have a better understanding and how to succeed in life. So success is huge in Japanese culture and being able to achieve more and have more access is always something that they want to do. Um, Christianity is not always the focus for, I think, most Japanese homes or even religion in general. From what I've been, what I've learned and what I've been told and what I've seen, Christ, like Christianity is mostly skeptical, where they're, they're mostly skeptical of it because it's a Western type of religion. And in Japan, the primary religions are Buddhism and Shinto, of which both sort of meld together really well. So they, the Japanese are typically more of like, how can I include this into my daily life? But Christianity isn't like that. Do you think it has a chance? I think it clearly does. Yeah. There you, are, are, yeah. I are I grew up in a in a church that was very integrated and enough that like my grandfather helped found one of these churches back in the sixties, seventies. And it's got a very like an aging population in its congregation, but I would describe it as people who have brought themselves into it clearly see this as a type of community. And I think that's one of the bigger draws of it for Japanese people is that it's an, it's an integrated community of which you can all share in a shared activity. And the support that a lot of Christian communities get, even in other countries and even in the U.S., a lot of people are really looking for just community and having something to bond over and having something to connect with, and especially in a wholesome way, where you're uplifting each other, you're supporting each other, you're creating these activities that you share and you have shared values. I think that's everything. When I when I say it's it's two percent of the population, mm-hmm. like in my head, 
I like kind of laugh like 2%. But if you consider there's 30 million people in Tokyo, 2% of that is 600,000 people. So that's when you say 600,000, it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's that's still a pretty massive amount of people in one city that would identify as Christian. So it's hard to even wrap your head around that there's 30 million people there. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Truly. Yeah, this is one city. This isn't even the, the country. The whole, the, yeah. That's, that's the city. I think they're somewhere around 140, 150 million for the entire country now. Just because they are in a population decline, and that's a whole nother topic. But it it's fascinating to me how many people don't realize how easily you can get a high density of people in a very small area (laughs) because I think in the U S the main, one of the big culture shocks for me was realizing how spread out everything is. It's yeah, it sucks. It's to to me. There are people that enjoy it. Some people like it. I mean, I lived in Montana for seven years and I love the big open spaces, but I'm like, you know how many things we could put in this little space over here? <laughs> There's a little lot over there that you could put like an entire high rise and get like six stories out of that. You can get two stories underneath. <laughs> I'm like, they're never going to do that. There's no need to. Is your dad still in Tokyo? He is not. Um, after my mother passed away, he took a sort of hiatus and came back to the States briefly for sort of a collect myself kind of trip. He bought a car and drove around the U.S. for about six months. That's cool. And on his way back through, because he started in Seattle, went down through California, through the Southwest, through the South, back up to the Northeast, and then back through, and then sort of back. Like, he went everywhere. He went to like, yeah. probably about 40 of the main states in the lower 48 and saw 500 people in about six months. And this is pre-COVID, too. So this is like in 2019. He ended the, the trip in April, and he came out to Montana on one of his last legs. And uh, that was a special weekend because he came out to Montana and I was able to be honest with him about what I was going through and we got to see some really cool sights and stuff. But then he went back to Japan briefly and moved back to the U.S. in 20... end of 2019. Yeah, he came in end of 2019. I think it was... Oh, gosh. I think it was... like. August or September because my sister was getting married in October of 2019 and he was back for that. Yeah, that sounds about right. But since then he has uh, remarried to a very lovely woman who he lives with in Everett now. Okay. So you're in the same state. Yes, we are in the same state. Okay, cool. That's, that's good. Do you have any family that's, brothers sisters that are in japan i have a brother and sister who both live in the everett area actually so we're all stateside now i have some family who like extended family who live in japan i have an aunt who lives there with her japanese husband i have an old classmate who still lives there i have many classmates who still live there um i have 
a couple cousins who still spend time over there, but primarily a lot of my family's over stateside. Do you have plans of going back or are you, yeah, are you here in the I States? Yeah, I do. I, I will probably live primarily here in the States and I will probably visit Japan from time to time. Um, my if they hope let, if they is, let us. yeah, if they let us right now, they're starting to starting, starting to lower the restrictions where it's like immediate relatives of permanent residents or residents in Japan can come visit, but they have like tourists are still not allowed. But if you if you live there and you work there, you're allowed to stay if you're a foreigner. Would you still consider yourself Christian or have you moved on from that? I would say that I have long not considered myself a Christian. OK, it's been um, a while. It's been a, it's been a hot minute. <laughs> OK. Growing up in that environment. Mm -hmm. you, you generally see one of two paths, like a, a complete intense devotion mm -hmm. or a complete withdrawal. But generally with the complete withdrawal, there's a trigger or multiple triggers that mm. pushed you out of it or away from it. Sure. Was that the case with you? Was there a defining moment where you realized this just isn't lining up with my beliefs. I would say that there was a time period where my, my, the part of my brain that starts to think about the bigger questions was ignited was probably freshman, sophomore, sophomore year of high school. So okay. probably 2005, okay. 2006. And as we were talking about the school itself is that it does have a faith-based curriculum. I would say that there are obligatory, obligatory Bible classes and there are sort of expectations to participate in all of the sort of um, activities that are associated with going to a private Christian school, including like a chapel, like every Wednesday we would go to chapel and there would be music and worship and then there would be a short message and then we go back out and it was it was basically like a micro church service but there were still like i said obligatory bible classes where it's like you're doing homework that is faith and christ and like all of that topic and reading books that are christian in fact there's a story that i've told on a different podcast actually that um was centered around um, growing up in a Christian environment and then learning to deconstruct it and to sort of build yourself back up. There was a story I told about my senior year. I was obliged to read a specific book for a homework assignment, but I started reading it and I was like, I don't like this. This is complete bunk to me. And it was a book by C.S. Lewis, uh, the same author who did Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right, the Narnia guy. Yeah, exactly. And I was just like, this doesn't make any sense. And I think this is an entirely fictional account of like something that I don't think is true. And it, the main topic was that demons in hell were tasked with being assigned to a specific human and were tasked with 
like tempting and subverting and doing everything they could to manipulate a human's behavior for evil or for negativity or somehow toxic. And I'm just like, that's so insane. How is that even thought of as possible? There's no evidence for this. The only thing, it's like they're saying that all this evil things you have in your head is like your default and you have to work so hard against this. This is complete bunk. And I didn't want to do the paper on it. And you weren't, you weren't being given this book to read as a work of fiction. You were being given this book to read as this is insight into how the devil works. It wasn't it's, for fun. You were actually I supposed guess, to learn. I, it was presented as homework where this is one of the books we read. And it was not explicitly said that this is truth. It was more of, it was an assumption that this is the kind of thinking we could have about the way we interpret sin and the way we interpret our relationship with devil or our relationship with God and how hard we have to work to stay pure from sin. It's, it's really bizarre because it was never explicit. It, it was just an assumption of like, ah, oh, yes, we read this Christian literature because of this author and tell us your thoughts about this particular story and how it affects you and how you see that affect you in your life. Those are the kinds oh, of things right. we would so do. It wasn't, it wasn't read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and write a book report. It was dissect no. the message and talk about how it would apply to you. Exactly. That yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, that's terrifying to me. It's, I can't even was, imagine what, what that's like to go to school and in between math and biology here's an hour of oh god like bible stories like i i do have friends that have grown up like that but it's wild to me that that's normal to certain people that that's what takes precedence over Mm -hmm. you know here's some more instead of some more education like we're gonna spend our time on this Oh God. Yeah. It it baffles me too, because I think a lot of youth, like young kids who have well-meaning parents who are good, nice people who find media or literature that is sort of assumed to be part of the same culture and the same sort of thought source to just give it to their kids. And I bet a lot of them do read it and they think, because of the the faith that they were given or the faith that they have cultivated for themselves, assume that this would also be beneficial to their kids. And I understand that from like a parent's perspective, as you want to give what makes you feel comforted and good and reassured about your decisions in life. And then giving it to your kids seems like a no brainer. And that's kind of the way I've had to look at it is that not looking back as it in the sense of like you were indoctrinating me and you were specifically trying to brainwash me to believe the way you do. That's not how I often see it. Now I know that there are families who do that, but that's not the experience that I had. As part of the, uh, I don't know how to word it. Would you, would you, is it right for me to use, the missionary term, would you consider 
that's why you, your family was there. Were, uh, here's what I'm trying to ask. This is a yeah. Better, go ahead. This is a better question. Were you were you out doing the Mormon thing? Were you out trying to find converts or actively convert people to Christianity? Or were you just at the school doing stuff for the school? That is a good question. And I think it's an important thing to clarify because I personally have a big problem with um, the, the true definition of the word even to evangelize is to, to go out and to preach the word to non-believers and to bring that message to people who don't know. But in the 21st century, we have learned a lot about the importance of consent, or at least I think where, a lot of us have. This is where I was and going with it. I'm glad. I was wondering. <laughs> and I found that it was a fine line from the missionaries that I was reared from. Now, looking back into my history of my family, my grandfather had a very different view of what my parents had as a view of how they would describe being missionaries. My grandfather was the type of, I'm going to go plant a church here in this neighborhood and I'm going to invite everyone in the neighborhood to come and to be part of our new church. And I'm going to show them how the gospel can change their life. And then my parents, the following generation at the same churches or in similar communities were maintaining the community of which was seeded by my grandparents. So they had a slightly different approach, at least in how I saw it, is that living by example was the method that my mother and my father used. And when I say living by example, I mean they are good Christian believers who were dedicated and eager and willing and patient and kind and they were willing to talk to you about Jesus if you wanted to. And if you had just the, you just wanted to have a nice neighbor, they were willing to be just that nice neighbor to you. And Got I it. think also the cultivation of this mission group in Japan naturally would absorb some of the culture of Japan. And some of the, the social culture of Japan is that, they're not pushy with each other. Japanese people are very reserved. And especially the older generation, there is a lot of skepticism towards foreigners, especially post-war. So they don't trust quickly. And it's a much easier time to just say, oh no, I just want to be your friend. And I want to show you that I still respect your culture. And... I will still be part of your culture and I'll say hello to you on the street and I'll buy vegetables from my local farmer and I'll still participate in a lot of the local Japanese customs. I may not go to the Buddhist temple or the Shinto shrine and I may not participate in those activities, but I'll go to the local Matsuri or the local festival or I will invite you to my church and you can partake in some of my culture. And it was this yeah. very inviting yeah. feeling and you're basically, not, yeah, you're not at Shibuya square 
handing out flyers, screaming into now, a speaker. You're not because that's, that's the, what that's, that's what the they do second, here. Yeah. That is what they do here, <laughs> and I think that that's a really unfortunate default for a lot of Christian churches in the U.S. But I will say, for high schoolers, there was a thing that was offered to students at my school, something called Gospel Team. It was literally what you were describing. Mm. It's we all get these blue, red, or green T-shirts, and we all have oh, no. like this logo on there. And they'll go to downtown, and they'll go to different parts of Japan, and they'll hand out flyers. But the flyers were an invite to a basically a church service where they could come and learn about Jesus, and they could have a chance to learn about the gospel. And if you would like to receive Christ, that's something we would love to see. But it's not something that they force people to do. They're not shouting at people. It's <laughs> it's something can't. that they do. I would love to see I, that. I would love, it's really love interesting because there's a, there's a funny thing. I wonder if you noticed this when you were there. When you were in downtown Tokyo, how many times were you ever handed a package of Kleenex? Never. Really? Yeah, I'm surprised by that. So it's one of the advertising tools that they do in Japan. So you'll see like young ladies with baskets on their arm and they'll have like a pile of like Kleenex or flyers to advertise for their like local business. And they'll be standing on the street and they'll like hand them out to you and they're like, hi, 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 come on into our business. And it's this way of like inviting people in. And that's, and there's also like barkers outside of major businesses. There'll yes. be people shouting their slogans and shouting their deals and shouting their sales. And they'll invite people in. It's this very common thing to do. But in Japan, it's like you don't shout about religion. You, the only other thing that I can see as an equivalent that seems unusual to Americans would be like, when it comes to like politicians getting elected, what they'll do is they'll take these vans and they have these big loudspeakers on the top of the vans yeah, and the, that's, the, that's... the politician will be in the van on a microphone, sh like talking about their slogans and talking about their values and talking about what they're going to do. And it's this like monologue that they do as they drive through a town so that people hear what they're trying to do as opposed to doing TV ads or any of that stuff, because it just means that you're out there going and talking to people, but you're not having conversations. You're just shouting on loudspeaker. Right. The so, one, the one thing that I saw one time was mm -hmm. a group of nine or ten all Japanese kids with mm -hmm. a giant banner singing, and the banner was something about Christianity. And I was like, whoa, that's that's crazy. Like, I would see the occasional small mm -hmm. church. But that was it. You know, there was nothing besides, I don't know, five total churches maybe that I saw. And then mm -hmm. the the kids on, like, on the sidewalk just singing. And, like, that was my entire interaction with anything Christian, Christian related in, in, in three weeks. So. Yeah, I guess that checks out for me too. And I think since I, even since I was a kid, like Christianity has evolved 
to be a lot more of a palatable religion in Japan, especially in like, like younger people. I think a lot more younger people are becoming more um, interested in Western culture. So like fashion and um, like there's weird little documentaries I see every so often of like, like uh, I remember seeing, I think this is what it is, like a group of uh, Japanese people who are obsessed with like LA car culture. Yeah. And yeah. they have like Chicanas and Chicanos and they have it's like awesome. lowriders awesome. and they all dress like Chicanos and Chicano. Like I was like, what is this? This is bizarre. And they have like bars dedicated to it. And they're all obsessed with it. They get the magazines, they got the cars, they got everything. And they're all imported cars, like a poor imported American cars that they just deck out. And I'm like, I don't understand the necessarily the practicality of this, but you know, they have a fascination with it, and I guess I really can't be mad. It's not my culture, but it's also, like, I've heard that, like, people from L.A. or from Mexico who see this are just like, that's rad. Yeah. <laughs> that it's gotten that I, far. I, hope they, and and I hope they think it's cool. Because, I mean, they're definitely not Mexican, or they're definitely not Spanish, or, like, any of those, like, heritages, but they have an appreciation for it. And I think, I think that that's something that Japanese is doing that with Christianity too. Oh, just because it's an aspect of American culture. The, especially, I, I think partially. Yeah. If you, if you are heavily into that LA Hispanic culture and you're looking at examples from LA or Mexico, mm or even any anywhere from most of South America, you can't avoid the Virgin Mary on painted on a car hood or on a hat or on a t-shirt. And I think that that imagery is so tied in with that Hispanic culture mm -hmm. that they may not, the Japanese kids may not even know who that is, but they're like, Oh, this just comes with like, I love my low rider. And the guys that love these lowriders love whoever this is. Mm -hmm. And they just like, oh, I'm going to get that shirt. And then maybe they find out who it is and maybe it leads them into like a. From, from my understanding with the Buddhism and the Shinto. Is that it's more of a. Cultural thing than a religious thing. Would you that's a really that's a very interesting take. And I think that that has like there's there's something to that there if, it would be an interesting study to do whether you could quantify it in any way like that whether it was a western fascination versus something that they hold to be their own culture yeah i i think that's an interesting take if you were christian mm. and you you found hinduism Sure. And, and you, you just dropped your Christianity and you convert mm -hmm. or even if it's not that serious, you just shift your beliefs. You don't, sure. you don't go get ordained or whatever they would call that. Generally speaking, there's some leftover guilt of, Oh, I left, I left Jesus. Like mm -hmm. I've been raised as a child that Jesus is the way. Mm -hmm. And I'm risking something by maybe leaving him where maybe I end up 
maybe I go to hell for this. Mm. Whereas if you're a, if you're Buddhist and you grew up in Japan, just following the traditional customs when you visit a certain location, mm-hmm. I don't know. And I can't, obviously I can't speak for them. I don't know mm. if you would have that guilt of I've done something horribly wrong by converting mm. to Christianity. Christianity. I would tend to think that maybe they would look at it like, oh, I've, I've picked up Christianity, but I didn't leave this culture of bowing and clapping and, mm-hmm. you know, praying to this certain, I don't, I don't, maybe that would be where the, where the distinction lies. Like, cause if I pray to Jesus, I can't also pray to this specific, you know, Japan has so many gods. It's true. It would and I think, complicated. I think you're actually onto something there because I think in Western culture, specifically American culture, the one that I have the most familiarity with is that you're all or nothing. Right. You're all or nothing when it comes to your beliefs. And it's heaven or Japan, hell. It's heaven or hell. There's only one choice. So I think that you had hit it on the nail, like hit the nail on the head in regards to, I just picked up Christianity because a lot of Japanese people, a lot of the predominantly older Japanese people are very traditional. So when I say traditional, not in the sense of like not being able to try new different kinds of jobs or anything like that, or being incorporated into a more capitalist society, but respecting older traditions like every new year there is like you go to the local temple and you all ask for blessings for the year and you make those like those sort of rituals and those traditions that you do that you've been doing for hundreds of years as a family and those aren't necessarily seen as religious they're seen as tradition so i think you're exactly right in the in the broader sense of most Japanese people don't see absorbing Christianity as a betrayal of their culture. Have you been to the American South? I have not say, (laughs) I would say that I have not. And the closest I ever got was the airport in Memphis. And my, my biggest take was, boy, there's a lot of barbecue places in here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Barbecues and churches. That's what that's what we got. I grew up in South Carolina, okay, for for twenty years until I moved out to Colorado. Mm-hmm. In whereabouts in South, in South Carolina? Car- in Columbia, which is home of, home of the Gamecocks. Okay, it's is that right in, like in the, the middle of the state, right like in the dead, d- dead, dead center. center. Gotcha. Yeah, it. But go on. Yeah, it's. I I could say a lot of good things and a lot of bad things, but we'll stick with the current topic sure the way that people would attempt to convert you to christianity in Mm. south carolina were these little two inch high by five inch wide comic books are you familiar with these yeah okay you know them i'm I'm very aware of them and they would tell you some terrifying story of how Mm -hmm you would do something wrong and go to hell. Yep. And I used to wait tables and I used to have jobs that would interact me with people quite a bit. 
and I would often get them left as like a tip or mm-hmm. I could be walking through the mall and someone would come up to me and be like, Oh, I think you may need this, you know, and, and hand it to me. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine that approach in Tokyo? I believe scaring them into it. I believe I've actually seen a chick track Have in you? Okay. Japan. Okay. And I think I remember seeing it left on a urinal <laughs> of all places. I believe that's where they belong. But I also think it was probably like no one would understand what it is. Because I don't think that kind of messaging would work well in Japan because it's aggressive and Japanese are immediately turned off by aggressive American style speech. Okay. Yeah. I remember it's been a few years since I've seen one, but they wouldn't make, they would, it was a comic book. So if they wanted emphasis, Mm -hmm. the letters would get huge and, and bold. Mm -hmm. So they would pick that up and just immediately. Yeah. That's that's crazy because you think about the anime (laughs) and anime is incredibly aggressive. I don't know if I would describe it as aggressive as like, Oh, because it's not, it's intense, but it's not angry. Correct. That's a good way to put it. And manga, like the comic books, the manga that, you it's like if you want one you go get it it's not <laughs> it's not shoved. it's okay. not shoved down your throat or <laughs> pushed onto you on the side of the street like i i think that that's one of the one of christianity like as a as a whole it's one of its biggest mistakes in the u.s is evangelism and i think the idea of going out and talking to strangers about something that you feel is like life changing. And it's, it feels like you're, I watched this great video about how evangelism is marketing and it's being a salesperson. So how good can you be a salesperson for Jesus is really all that I've seen in American style. Christianity is capitalist focused religion and it's a lot of money really really bizarre to me but it makes sense when you frame it in a way that actually describes what you're seeing so as soon as i started to realize that i started to realize oh they're just trying to sell me something and they're trying to give you life insurance and every person who talks about religion is some sort of life insurance salesman so I stop talking to people about what my beliefs are. If they ask me what my beliefs are, then I'll tell them. What are your beliefs? In regards to <laughs> afterlife, afterlife and, and deities and whatnot. Well, do you participate in any sort of religion? The way I describe myself in the short answer is I am a casual Buddhist. Okay. So what happens when you die? I believe the universe recycles and I don't believe the soul is um, a one time use. I think that's incredibly wasteful and energy has no reason to be wasteful. Because so not recycled what... only in a physical way, but recycled in a 
spiritual way as well. Correct. I, okay. I do believe in reincarnation and the, the learning and growing of perspective and consciousness. So every person has a level of consciousness that is an awareness of themselves, an awareness of things around them, awareness of people around them, and then awareness of the multitudes of people beyond that, and then awareness of the Earth, awareness of the solar system, awareness of your galaxy, and so forth. Is there like, such a thing as a new soul? Like a first-time inhabitant? Or is it all... That's a really good question. Reused. That's the first time I've ever been asked that. And I don't know for sure. I think within my parameters of my cosmology, I think there is a type of that. I think that there is a part of... So the way I look at it is that we are all part of a greater consciousness. And I think that's what I would describe as God is the great final ultimate conglomerate of consciousness. And what happens when life occurs and a vessel is made, like a body is made, either in the womb or in an egg or in life anywhere, is that consciousness manifests as much as it can in that vessel. And whenever there is a new type of life, then a fraction of the great consciousness will go into it. And the only thing that can really occur as far as a new soul is a new experience. I don't believe necessarily that all souls are sort of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the ultimate all-encompassing soul. But when they, when a specific soul heads back to the, to the greater mm -hmm. mass, sure. the greater mass learns the experiences from the individual. Correct. Correct. Have you ever played Mass Effect? I have. Okay. Have you played Mass Effect 2? I've played most of 2, I think. Okay. Did I, you ever I think meet... I might have finished, I think I might have finished it. Did you meet Legion, the robot? I did. So he is kind of what you're describing in a metaphorical way where sure. Legion is one robot, but they're all connected on the same network. Mm -hmm. So at any point in time that one robot learns something, it's immediately like uploaded and shared mm -hmm. to some collective. It's mm -hmm. much, it would be a much faster experience than reincarnation, but mm -hmm. in a way there, you could say there's a few similarities. The major difference between those two the way I describe it and the way that you describe it, or at least with that example, is that because Legion is a digital entity and its consciousness is manifested through a digital medium, which is designed to be able to upload in real time, is the reason why I would describe that as a hive mind more than I would describe that as a soul group. Yeah, okay. You're right. You, you I mean, I don't know if I'm right. At, at I don't game. know if I would. I, <laughs> I don't know if I would say I'm right. I would just say that that's how I feel comfortable perceiving and accepting the world in the way that I can see it. You're right about the difference between your example and my example. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, we're not we're not yeah. going to crown anybody like king of <laughs> king of everything here. But. I won this debate. <laughs> it's not a debate. Gosh, that's one of my least favorite things is when it's like debate me. No, that's not well, helpful. You, you think what you want, and I'll think what I want, and we just go on about our lives. And that's that's what I really hope for people is to is to be able to listen to other people and say. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that you thought like that. Or, wow, that's something I never even considered. I wonder that's, if I can apply that to me. That's the entire reason why I do this podcast. Because well, I go. just have, I have my thoughts. But, you know, as little as I may have in common with a hardcore Republican Trump supporter, mm-hmm. or how much I may have in common with like the dude that I talked to recently from Sweden, Mm. all these people have outlooks and experiences and ways of thinking that I don't. Mm. And I can talk to you and disagree with you, but still be interested in in why you feel that way or how you feel. So it's like, why don't I just talk to these people? You know, and a lot of people don't always want to, but, I feel like the ones that don't want to are the ones that you just kind of described as, well, yeah, let's come on and I'll debate you or, Mm. or I don't want to come on and argue with you. And it's like, man, I don't know if you've ever listened to any of these, but there's rarely like arguing going on. You can say whatever. I'm not going to tell you that, that you're wrong. Mm. One of the first things that you said. Yeah. I have never heard myself described as bright eyed and excited. And I think that you were in a very unique position where you saw me for probably the first time in 15 years Mm. being excited. And I don't mean Mm. excited. Like I'm going to a concert tonight or excited. Like I got a hot date. I mean, excited, like, this is a once in a lifetime moment. This is Mm. like freedom from everything I've ever known for, for weeks at a time. Most people describe me as depressed or jaded or bored, not boring. Well, maybe some people would describe me as boring, Mm. but it's, it's so, surprising to hear you say, Oh, you were so like awake and so mm-hmm. like ready to experience life because I, I try to avoid experiencing life as much as possible. It was that specific Ooh. moment in time that, I mean, it did have like a prolonged effect on, uh, like wanting to go experience new stuff mm-hmm. because prior to that trip, I also hadn't really done a lot of traveling in general. Like I grew up in the South and, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to North Carolina, Georgia, mm-hmm. you know, I've been to like States, mm-hmm. but I've never really like been out there. And, you know, I've definitely never gone to a country where I can't even talk to you. Yeah. And, 
I don't know if I have anything else to say about that, but it, it stuck with me as you may be one of the few people who's ever, because everyone else that saw me could tell I was having fun on that trip, but they were seeing me through a picture on Instagram or mm-hmm. a, sh- a short video. So I bet you're one of five people that could truly say that they like saw me in person, like super happy and excited. So that's, you got one up on 99% of the people that I know. Well, that's, I feel very lucky because I, I love meeting new people and I'm typically a very social person and I could tell you were excited and I could tell that this was something you had really been looking forward to. And that's one of the reasons why I think we bonded so quickly is because you were about to partake and enjoy something that I also enjoy to my core of my being is Japanese culture and living in Japan and living in a space and spending time in a place that feels comforting. And I wanted to give you the best chance to enjoy it in a way that you may not even realize. So giving you that extra sort of extra tools and extra, like, I don't know. I just wanted to like, I don't want to say like, I didn't want to feed off of what you were about to experience, but hi puppy. I really just wanted to, it's one of my favorite things that I've learned about myself is learning and watching people grow is one of my greatest joys in life. And seeing people try new things to have new experiences that gives them something that builds them up as a person. And I could tell that this was something that you had been looking forward to. It was something that you really wanted and you were about to go get. And seeing you do that was a treat. So (laughs) I am thankful for that experience. Come here, baby. definitely had... A lasting effect. It's definitely changed. Kind of not, I wouldn't go as far as to say change what I want from life, but mm-hmm. it's changed a little bit how I approach it. And yeah. maybe my, my desire to do new things or try new things. Mm. But you have also, and you've kind of alluded to it a little bit while we've talked. Mm-hmm. You're... I don't know if this is the right way to say it. Go ahead. Would you say that you're the same person that you were Mm. four years ago? Or would you say? That's a great question. And I think I know what you're getting at. But (laughs) uh, I would probably say no. I don't think I really was the same person. Not in the sense of like completely throw out the old and in with the new. I would say that the person that I was 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 in a lot of pain and in a lot of uncertainty and I didn't know how to move forward right away so 2018 my mother passed away from brain cancer 
and it was traumatic, not only for her, but for our whole family. And I think anyone who goes through the loss of a parent, uh, it shakes you to your core. And it certainly, the way I describe it, it rang a huge bell inside of my heart. And she was 62 when she died. And I was approaching 30. And I started to realize that I was halfway to her age. And if I'm completely honest with myself, I knew that there was something in my heart that I needed to let out and to be able to express that I was holding back for a long time. And six months following my mother's death, and she died in August of 2018, and we met in September 2018, you had caught me at the point where I had almost certainly decided that I needed to come out as transgender. And... I hadn't fully understood what that meant. I didn't realize what the steps were going to be. And the, the next major step was telling my father, who, as I had explained earlier, went on a six-month travel trip to the U.S. after her death. And at the end of that trip, about six months after she passed away, I had told him that my that mom's death had awakened something in me to tell me, am I going to live the rest of my life, potentially the other half of my life, in depression and fear and anxiety and just wishing to be somewhere else or something else? Or am I going to choose happiness and choose pursuing a dream and making that dream a reality? And I told him that I was questioning my gender. And he says, okay, well, get a counselor, figure it out, whatever you choose, I'll be with you. Awesome. And I couldn't ask for a better response. And then about for six a second, months... You had me going for a second when you said, find a counselor. I was like, oh no, where's that going? But well, the second half of the sentence was was a lot better. I was a little nervous in the moment, too. And of course, I hugged him, embraced him and just wept because that was all I could ever ask for. So about a year after she passed, I began uh, my transition and it has been nearly three years since that time. And yeah. I would say that it was a choice made for the better. I have since been able to conquer a lot of my mental issues. Not all of them, because there's no such thing as conquering everything forever. <laughs> but I would say that insomnia that I struggled with and uh, heavy dysphoria of feeling uncomfortable in my body and being able to socially present in a way that I felt comfortable and choosing a name that felt more appropriate to who I was, who I am, and being able to be honest with people was incredibly validating and freeing. And it's led me to um, 
relationships that I never expected to have, including my current partner and fiance, who we are getting married next year. And have you decided where are you doing it in Washington? We're doing it in Spokane. Okay. So my fiance and I just actually, uh, we picked our venue last night. Is it, is it going to be in a church? No, no, it's going to okay. be out. It's going to be outdoors. Okay. Oh, that's we're, cool. we're that's Lord cool. of the Rings dorks. So we are doing what we're calling Hobbit chic. <laughs> are there going to be, and there's not, are there costumes involved? Not explicitly, no. Okay. What we're doing okay. is we have little accents of Lord of the Rings nerdy stuff. There are seven people accompanying us on the at at the the wedding where it's happening. So there'll be a total of nine on in the wedding party. So we are called the Fellowship, and there are okay. no bridesmen or groomsmen. There's just a lot of queer people. And it's going to be a nice, very, very sort of nerdy, geeky wedding. And we're very excited for it. That's cool. I hope but I wouldn't. Well, thank you. I am very blessed because there is a large multitude of my family who, as we've talked about, is that we're missionary based and. Right. Also, I would describe as evangelical or conservative Christian adjacent. And surprisingly, a lot of them have been quite supportive. Um, the, the strangest, but also like nicest thing I've heard from one of my more conservative aunts was, I may not understand what you're doing, but I understand that my job is to love you. And that is what I will continue to do. And it's so hard for some people to get that. And I honestly was very grateful and I will take it as a good sign more than I would saying or hearing in that I don't agree with what you do and I'm going to love you in the way that means something to me, but not to you. And I think that that is valuable to not cast a negative shadow on every potential olive branch. True. True. And I'm a fierce optimist. And I find that assuming the worst in people is only going to give you the worst in people. Yeah. Well, we can agree to disagree on that one. And many people <laughs> do. I really, that is a quality though, that I look for in other people. Because really? I don't want to surround myself with other shit thinking negative people. Like I have mm. enough of that for myself. I don't need you also coming in and making it worse. Like come in and give me, give me your optimistic perspective and kind of mm -hmm. help me out a little bit. But yeah, no, I get that. Was, I had a question or I had oh, something. Yeah. I had something, but it it's just, it's flown out of my mind. We were talking about um, coming out and family and weddings and um, 
Yeah, I, is, I would just go ahead. I'm sure that this is a different process for everyone, but <laughs> as you're transitioning, is mm. there a, is there a point where I'm no longer transitioning? It's a completed mm. process or I'm like, I, I'm not, I transitioned. It's, it's over. Mm. Mm. I think a lot of people have that question and it's a little hard to, to pose to everybody because I think the definition of what, finalizes a transition is different for everybody right for sure and based on myself and not speaking for every trans person out there i would say that i don't think that there is ever going to be a full like the status bar is never going to close because i don't think in the sense of like a lot of people associate like fully transitioning with surgeries or legal status or changing documents and whatnot. And yeah, those things are valuable on a social level and on a legal sense to affirm and to support and to like give you all the tools you need to be successful in the way that you feel best. But there's still, I was 29 when I began my transition process and that's nearly 30 years of being raised one way do i have to live another 30 years to feel like i would outweigh what i started with i don't think Is, so you describe your uh, your mental struggles before mm-hmm as depression, insomnia, mm -hmm. uncomfortable, just mm. existing. Yeah. Do you, is there a point or do you, are you hoping for a point where all of that is completely gone or do mm. you already feel like, like is your depression gone or do you still struggle? Cause I definitely struggle with it mm. and I don't know what causes it or what I could do to fix it aside. You know, I could do medication, but if we're talking like mentally, mm. like what change could I make in my life and myself mm. that would alleviate this depression mm. if I could find out what it was mm. and then do it like I would hope, okay, my depression's gone. Mm. But do you like, are there times that you still feel like short answer that uncomfortableness still hanging around? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Um, I would say that it's less constant as opposed like before coming out before transitioning, especially before hormones. Um, I would describe dysphoria percentage per day to be in like the 75 to 90 percent intensity yeah, and then it's awful i noticed an immediate shift within the first week of taking hormones to the point where it's like imagine if your nose is just stuffed up and you have a cold for like five years straight and you just want it to 
go away and it never does and then all of a sudden you just oh oh thank heavens i can breathe again that's how close i can get to describing doing that initial shift and i would say not it's not there's no permanent fix for mental illness and I think that that's a really hard truth for a lot of people to know or to hear because I have many people who suffer from all kinds of mental illness and there's no cure for experiences that we have. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, have distorted views of themselves due to either experience or trauma or perception that was either warped about them or warped from themselves. And I also think that it comes down to environment and culture and a number of different factors. I don't think that solving mental health is going to happen in the way that people hope for which is i would love to eliminate mental health for people but that's just not how it works i think that it's part of the human experience as much as that's a really kind of dismissive thing to say i also think that pain and struggle and suffering are a part of existence and i think that our ability to understand interpret evolve from and grow from these experiences is a way for us to evolve as creatures as human souls so and i know that there are plenty of people who would be like I've had horrible things happen to me and it's debilitating and I can't function because I have nightmares or I can't function because I don't have these medications in my life that remove this suffering from my brain or somehow put a stopgap in it. And I think you can use those tools. I think having a better understanding of what your experiences are is only going to improve your ability to manage not cure or control manage but going from a 75 percent overwhelming feeling mm -hmm. to an occasional overwhelming feeling is a huge win i think so so i guess my question was worded kind of stupid because i was asking did it no. go away like did you fix like did it disappear but it you did eliminate a large amount of it. Mm -hmm. I think okay. I think a lot of people misunderstand that about queer people in general, but also just trans people as a particular demographic, is that my dysphoria and my life experience prevents me from having the ultimate solution, which is to be a cis female to be able to have periods, to be able to have children, to be able to 
participate in the experiences of growing up entirely as a cis female, that is never going to be something that is available to me. And coming to that ugly truth was a big part of my ability to accept that I may not be able to have that, but what I can have is uh, easier time in my body while I'm here. I think that you just said something that I probably have never heard before or never thought before. You transition to live the rest of your life as a woman, but mm-hmm. there is still a part of you that has a sadness that you, there couldn't be more or that you couldn't have lived the entirety of your life this way. That's right. Oh, no shit. See, that's, that's an aspect of this that had we not talked about it, that just would have been lost on me forever. Cause who else is going to walk up to me and, you know, just randomly say that or have right? that conversation. So, I, so I... Th- that feelings is always kind of in hanging mm-hmm. out. They're always in my bus station. They never get on that bus. And the more shit that's in that station, that shit adds up. How many people can I get on this bus? How many people have paid for their fare? Okay. You can hang out as long as you don't wreck shop. And yeah, like I think that's one of the hard things for a lot of people who don't understand trans people is that we have had to come to grips on an internal level with our identities and to have a majority of our lives where we're questioning our very existence. And there are so many people who don't even get to that crossroad where they don't question, am I supposed to feel this way? Or am I supposed to like this person? Or why do I hate myself all the time? And why do I feel out of place? Why do I feel like I'm not supposed to be here? Constantly. And then it turns into people who are just like, I've ne-. like to me, what's a baffling experience is people who are cis and heterosexual, where they are absolutely comfortable in their body and they have no questions about who they're supposed to be in, like attracted to and they have no desire to be on the fringe. I'm like, the fuck is that? I don't understand. How do you do that? Because for me, my instincts were to embrace the weird, find what's strange, find something that's more unique, and never feel like you should fit in with the crowd. And that was not because I was told to do that. That was just my instincts. It's bizarre. I can I can relate to the general idea that you put out there of mm-hmm. like, I'm not like these people. Like I, I wasn't tattooed and oh, I don't even know when I was younger, having piercings or being tattooed meant something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't mean shit anymore. It, it means nothing. But back then, like you were, 
you were like an underground kid or a street kid or mm. a, a, a punk kid and some, sure. something along those lines. Now it's just become such a, a normal thing, but I always knew obviously not in the same way as what you're describing that all my upper middle class friends that I grew up with and their parents and their families, I was always like, no, this isn't, this isn't what I want. This isn't for me. And my mom would always try to push me like, let's go to the mall and get you some Eddie Bauer. You know, it was like, Oh mom, like, like, uh, and Obviously, I don't want to dress like dad. Gross. Like, like not the same thing, but mm-hmm. the, the general thought, I feel like, you know, can kind of be applied to just like, no matter what I do or no matter what you want me to do, mm-hmm. that's just not going to be me. Yeah. That's just not who I am. Mm-hmm. And had I been forced to smash myself into that, Mm. like yeah imagine like i can imagine like the depression or that that anger Mm -hmm. like inside that Mm. just festers and festers yeah and you would have to do something about it you have to make Mm. that change so and it's true i can it's it's i appreciate that you can muster the empathy to like put yourself in a situation where, Hey, I may not like what's being presented to me. Therefore I'm not going to participate. And there's a, some, there's a lot of that in the queer community is that we had to fight really hard. Like I am very well aware of the privilege that I have as a white trans woman versus being a black trans woman, or even just a queer person in general 50 years ago because yeah. I would not be able to be who I am today were it not for bricks thrown at appropriate times and places decades before me. Like that's one of the things that really kind of struck me hard was joining into my fiance's community and their circle was eye-opening to me because there are a lot of older people who are queer or trans and they have such vastly different experiences and the greater collective of people who are in this network have been able to show me it's like oh we know a lot about our history and most people don't so if you want to hear about it let me tell you and I'm like oh my gosh I had no idea oh my gosh I had no idea of all of these types of histories and experiences that people have before us. And it breaks my heart that it was so hard for just for us to exist. And that's why I think it's important. Yeah. I may not be one of the most credible sources of queer thought or even trans experience, because I haven't exactly had a lot of, queer oppression in my particular experience where yes I may have been repressed from a young age in the environment where I was raised but it doesn't mean that I was specifically outed or beaten or harmed in any direct way because of who I was I was still assumed to be a white 
male growing up. And even that has its own level of privilege. Is there, is there some sort of thought in the trans community that mm. you have to s- struggle and face harsh opposition in order to earn? Cause you're kind of apologizing. Like, like I didn't have to go through this, but that doesn't make your experience any less real or valid than mm. someone who had a very difficult time. Mm. You both had to go through different paths and while your path may have been, oh, we'll put quotes like easier. Sure. Like also everyone, some people can get shit on all day long and it doesn't bother them and they just walk right through it. Mm-hmm. Some people get shit on once and it, it breaks their heart. Yeah. So the level of, difficulty that you had to go through you also have to take into effect well how much was that affecting you mm-hmm. like, i don't is I, I think i know what you're getting at and the, has anyone ever said to you like <laughs> you didn't have to go through the shit i went through so like you're little you're less of a yeah. trans person. Yeah. Not specifically for the trans stuff. I think, I think a lot of experiences specifically like traumatic experiences, regardless of the community that you're in queer, sure. queer community aside, there is a lot of gatekeeping is the term that we use where it's like, you're not a real such and such unless you've been through this hardship. It's kind of like when your parents say, it's like, well, when I was a kid, I went through the snow uphill both ways and it was four feet of snow and I had to go barefoot. Like, you didn't work as hard as I did, so therefore you have it easy. Stop complaining. It's that mentality. And I think it's important to acknowledge the experiences that you have and to be able to communicate those experiences with each other and to listen to each other's experiences without discrediting them. And when people say stuff like, oh, you're just a baby trans. You came out three years ago, honey. You have barely gone through it. And I'm like, yeah, I've met some people who've been out for 10 years, who've been out for 20 years or are just queer, like gay, and they're not necessarily trans. And I'm just like, wow, you're just gay. You're not trans like me, where it's like I had to go through hormones and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I've i caught myself thinking like that before. And I, I do think that it's problematic overall because it decreases the amount of sympathy and empathy we carry with each other as human beings in general. It is wild to hear someone from a group who is very actively, very loudly asking for acceptance Mm -hmm. to have bickering of acceptance inside Mm -hmm. their own group. Like, Oh, you're, you're just gay. It's like, Mm. well, if they are only gay and that's who they are, isn't that totally fine? Like, absolutely. Right. It's, that's that's interesting. I've I have encountered some people who came out in like the seventies and eighties 
and they are people who have gone through incredible strife and they're like, I can imagine what it was. And like Oh my, Oh my Lord, those people have gone through so much and just, I, I wanted to just sort of listen to them tell their story because it provided so much context for what we've been through as a, as a human, as a human race. But I remember telling them just like, I may not relate to the literal beatings you received for being who you are, but I am grateful for you sticking to it and being yourself in spite of all the suffering you endured because I don't think I would have had that kind of bravery if I was in their position. And being able to recognize that is not always easy. And like, I'm a bit of a pacifist. Like I really don't want to get involved in violence if I can avoid it. And I find myself running scenarios in my head where it's like, what if I went out to a bar and some big dude comes up to me and threatens me? What do I do? and usually my thought is to remove myself from that situation or just don't get into that situation at all. This sounds like the best option for anybody. You would think. Yeah. But these people in this, like the early days, like I had seen an article about a woman in the fifties who publicly transitioned. She was a well-known figure who publicly transitioned and not to mention transitioned very well and like gracefully and she is beautiful and like was the first like public basically superstar of the time to come out and be out in a public way and was definitely greeted with mixed reviews but i would say that like the courage that people have is what makes me admire them the most and that kind of courage is what bolstered me to be able to do what I can do because the people who laid the foundation allows for people to put in the frame and then the frame can hold windows and the windows can be insulated and the house can be built and is the foundation more important than the walls is the is the roof more important than the foundation? It's all important together. And yeah, like it frustrates me that our society and our culture here in the U S is so polarizing because I find that we have more in common than we ever thought we did. And the fact that people are saying, oh, you don't deserve this because you didn't suffer enough, or you don't deserve this because you don't believe this, or we don't deserve giving things to each other because I never received that when I was younger, and therefore you don't deserve it. It's like, just because you have suffering doesn't mean that it justifies suffering for other people. If you could give advice to someone Mm. who may be at the beginning stages, I guess it doesn't really matter at, at any point. Like, would you 100% always suggest like, yes, pursue this. Yes. Pursue this. If this is who you truly are, or would there be situations where you might say, 
maybe this wouldn't be the correct path for you. And not specifically just on, I know I, I brought it up about the trans thing, but mm-hmm. let's just make it more general about knowing truly who you are or who you want to be. It, is it, is it always go be it? Or are there times where maybe? That's a really hard question, but I think I have at least, I don't know necessarily want to say that I have the best advice for this, but the only way that I was ever able to come to any sort of confidence or focus or direction in myself was after lots and lots and lots of looking within and to look at myself in the eyes of the experiences that I had and to look at them from an experience of objectivity. So like times when you're little and you had some painful sadness that you had why were you sad well I lost this thing that was precious to me well why was it precious to you well because my mom gave it to me well that makes sense and you should feel normal about feeling like you lost something or if you have a friend that you lost why did you lose that friend well probably because I was too clingy and I smothered them and they were overwhelmed by that. Well, why were you doing that? Well, it's probably because I didn't have a lot of friends when I was younger. Like, try to unearth the seed of yourself and see you're, where it... Hmm? You, you're awesome. There oh. are so few people that are capable of having that conversation with themselves. And then there are so few people that know what questions to ask themselves. Mm. And then on top of that, there's so few people that will be honest with themselves. Mm. And at every step of that process, you're losing a significant percentage of people. To have the honesty well, with oneself is I'm, a crucial I'm, thing. I'm just always surprised in a, in a bad way at how hard that is for people. Mm. And not only have you been capable of doing it to get where you are now, mm-hmm. but you're also able to put it into words for as advice to someone else. And you just, that's another step, right? You know, what to think, you know, what to ask, you know, how to be honest with yourself, but then you also know how to explain it to Mm. someone else. Well, thank you for that. I can't say that I got that, like just one damn sitting there in meditation all of a sudden. Oh my God, I'm not honest with myself. And I think that's why it's so hard because the, the hours upon hours Mm -hmm. of, just sitting there thinking or self-reflecting mm-hmm. is hours upon hours that you could have been on TikTok. Well, 
I don't say that they don't go on social media because that is still an addiction (laughs) I have. But that's how time seems to be passed in a lot of ways. And I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to be the old man hating on the younger generation. It's people my own age, too. But that's not that's not a jab at the current 20 year olds. Like there are plenty of people my age that can't just sit there and think what do I want or mm-hmm. what, like, especially what you said. Well, I had an argument with my friend. I lost a friend, but why did that happen? Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's just, Oh, they're, they're a bitch. And it's I like, Oh, that... well, well what happened? And they're like, you know, whatever their side of the story is like, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, like what, what truly I I think there's some interesting observations of what you're saying and the the vindictive nature that I've seen in especially a lot of relationships with people either friendships or romantic in general I think that a lot of people haven't done the work in growing as themselves before jumping into a relationship with someone even friendships where it's like, what do I want out of this friendship? Is it meant to be a productive friendship or is it meant to be an exchange or a transactional friendship? Or even is this relationship with this person I care about, is it entirely because of the convenience of it or is it entirely because of our social circles match and we just enjoy each other's company? Like being able to break it down is a really hard skill. And I can only say that I was able to I've cultivate the skill because it takes work. It um, does. Probably because I had to, I really had to confront why I was suffering. And I think for me, at least in my experience, Buddhism helped me a lot with that because in Christianity, as sort of tying full circle to what we were talking about, Christianity tells you you are sinful default, right? Right. You're a bad and, person. Well, you're, you're impure essentially okay. from birth, at least in Protestant evangelical. And unless you meet the certain criteria or certain actions, you won't achieve success or you won't be able to change that nature. And only through work can you change that nature and acceptance of simple truths. Now, for me, Christianity always felt fatalistic in the sense of you're going to be awful as a default, and there's no changing that unless you've accepted these dogmatic principles. And for me, Buddhism felt a lot more objective. It's acknowledging what you go through as suffering and saying, yes, life is suffering. And you cause more suffering if you become attached to material things or even relationships. And when you understand what those attachments are, you can better define and acknowledge what you're connected to. So I'm connected to my family. My father is an important person to me, but I understand that we don't live lives together. And the amount of love that we share between us are 
is a specific type of love. And then I can also find myself looking at my fiance and saying that we have a love together that we share and there are certain limitations to that and there's also different experiences that we have and that lead us to love in different ways and then the experiences that we have are different and just like being able to look at it in a truthful way but being able to mitigate suffering by remembering the temporary nature of living is to some people terrifying but in other ways relieving because one of the things that I say because my mother suffered quite a lot in the two years before her death she lost words memories and the ability to read to speak to think clearly, to form sentences, to write, because of a tumor in her brain. And it caused suffering. But when she passed, it was relieving to me because her suffering was ended in the physical form. So I was relieved to know that her suffering was gone. But knowing that, in my belief, reincarnation or souls can go on to live in a different place is valuable to me because I know that she's not gone forever. And to me, it's reassuring because I think that there will be a a new type of existence sometime in this universe, whether it's 100 million years from now or... 10 years from now, who knows, that there will be a reconnection of those souls and reconnecting of people. So there's a reassurance that I get from that. And I think Christianity shares that, where it's like, we all get to go live in heaven one day. Well, not not all of us. Well, that's one of the joys that they get when they say that they're saved. Right. Is that... They want that same thing for other people. They want you to all come to heaven with them. That's at least what they say. How they mean it and how they look at it is different for every person. But when they talk about like converting you and bringing you into the flock and whatnot, it's all these different words for the same thing. To live together in eternity with each other. Because that's what we want. And I think that that is reassuring is that there maybe there's like a bunch of different ways to look at it and i always found that in my life that like you should pull yourself back from a situation look at it from a different perspective and see if you can find a new truth that's a big part of being able to understand the wise is being able to see more than your point of view i don't know if you know that my mom is in a similar situation as your mom was no, really. So my mom doesn't have cancer, but she has Alzheimer's and dementia. Oof, and for the so last sorry. four years, she has been non-mobile in a bed, almost force-fed a liquid diet. So she can't Oof. walk. She can't move. She can't talk. 
She can't smile, but she still just exists in her bed. But I look at it the same way that you were saying, and I, I don't believe that she's going to an afterlife or that she's coming back or that she's going to heaven. I think that she just dies and mm-hmm. that's where it ends. But there is positivity in that, that at least when she dies, she's not just trapped. Like, I don't even know. It's hard to, I think that her brain comprehension is so gone, mm. but I don't really know if she's suffering I'm sure that she still feels physical pain, which means she feels it, but she's not able to express it, Mm. which could be like even worse. The more we as a human species can acknowledge that high (laughs) can acknowledge that suffering is universal and a part of our experience, then I think that the things that we use to separate ourselves will become less relevant. If someone was struggling with a similar situation as you, Mm -hmm. would you be open to them reaching out to you? Yeah, I, I am absolutely a person who is willing to create an open dialogue with people who wish to connect. So I think that that would be a, a perfectly fine thing to do. Do you have any closing comments, thoughts that you would like to get out there before we end? Sure. Um, try more empathy in all places of your life. Compassion and kindness as a foundation for your home of your heart. All right words to live by hey it's been so nice to catch up with you sean and i'm so glad to hear that you had such a positive experience in japan and that you're trying new avenues of reaching out to people and connecting because i think that is one of the best things that's going to help save our planet 